0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at tiaa.org/promises I'm
1: Maura Arranz-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who have dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change in the future. You know, it's always amazing to me when I talk to people who are struggling at work, especially right now, that they don't feel entitled to ask for what they want. I think a lot of us feel that we are not deserving of being treated with respect and courtesy in the workplace. I think a lot of us are used to our personal boundaries just being trampled over and over again. For example, I can't tell you how many introverts I've spoken with over the years who have just pretended to be extroverted, you know, going out to endless networking events or letting coworkers lean into their cubicle or desk because they just feel like they can't say hey, get out of my space, or hey, I need some quiet. Okay, maybe they can't say that, but they can ask for what they need. So that's what we're gonna talk about today, some of the nitty gritty things about work, the things that you may think shouldn't bother you, but actually they should bother you, and they are so much harder to deal with when you're stressed, anxious, depressed, or going through anything else. Part of my mission on this show is to normalize mental health struggles, And to recognize that trying to ignore them during the workday is next to impossible. So later in the show, you'll hear from Bob Posen, co-author of the book, Remote Inc., How to Thrive at Work, Wherever You Are, about time management, remote work, managing expectations with your boss so that your boss isn't anxious and nor are you. This is gold. And how to thrive despite internal and external struggles. First, we'll hear from Roxanne Gay. For those not familiar with her work, she's an incredible writer who's gained fame for her brutal humor and her honesty in books like Bad Feminist and Hunger. She also writes fiction. And for those of you who are familiar with Roxanne's work, you know that through her writing, she connects the dots between human frailty, our worst instincts, our hidden traumas, and work. I love her column, in the New York Times called Work Friend. In Work Friend, she discusses and addresses the problems that arise in our everyday lives at work. Things that may seem small on the outside, but are actually meaningful and need to be discussed. Here's Roxanne Gay. So I want to start. You are very prolific. Um, what i what i marvel about you especially during the pandemic is that you have been prolific in a lot of different formats in podcasting and your newsletter and of course your creative projects on webinars and zoom and i'm wondering how and why you you do so much and you've been doing so much during the pandemic i don't know
0: i think that <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I, a lot of it is that i'm ambitious and i'm willing to put in the work to make those ambitions happen. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Sometimes I succeed, sometimes I fail, but I'm always willing to try. I also feel a lot of pressure. You know, it's hard to resist that pressure because you always feel like people are judging you or doubting you And I feel this need to overcompensate in a lot of ways. And so a lot of it is also just self-doubt. And so trying to prove myself or like my imagined critics wrong. Mm. And um, I also love just trying new things.
1: I think that listeners might be both surprised and reassured to hear that someone like you still doubts themselves and feels that, you have something to prove, it never ceases to amaze me when I interview rich and famous people that they still feel insecure, (laughs) you know?
0: Yes. You know, I think that, you know, people would love to believe that if I achieve X, Y, and Z, all of my problems and insecurities will fall away. And that's simply not how it works. There are plenty of people for whom that might be true, but that is simply not true for me. And I I hope that changes and I'm actually working on it in therapy because I don't know that it's healthy to never be able to appreciate what you've accomplished and never Mm -hmm. be able to take a moment to recognize what you've accomplished.
1: What role do you think you've, you're kind of a self-professed, high-functioning, anxious person. What role do you think that plays in your productivity? Well, I wouldn't say I'm anxious. Mm. I'm just, I'm just
0: intense. <laughs> <laughs> What's the difference? Um, you know, I'm not afraid necessarily, and I'm not. You know, I don't like sit around worrying as much as I just am full of doubt. Hmm. It's hard to explain the difference. I mean, I under, you know, there's and there's nothing wrong with anxiety, and I, everyone has anxiety from time to time. But it's 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 something different than anxiety most of the time that is hard to articulate. It's actually just stress because I have a lot of responsibilities and I also have a bit of a following and so I never want to let people down. And so, you know, it's pressure and some of it's self-induced and some of it is external.
1: Yeah, I think that, I think that's just for listeners. I mean, the anxiety is a fear of what might happen in the future, and that could be five seconds from now. It could be 50 years from now. Stress is external pressure of, I'm going to let someone down. Yes. I'm not going to be able to make this person happy. Oh my gosh, this deadline, stuff like that. Yeah. I'm just like, what does, what does your sort of nature as a worrier, how does that contribute to your incredible productivity?
0: Well, it just makes me feel more in control. Mm. Like, if I work hard and I get things done and I accomplish things, then I'm in I'm in control. And so I am often chasing that sense of control.
1: Is control – I mean, control, I think, is a big thing for all of us. I think so. Right? Yeah. And I think especially – yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like a need that many of us humans how, have. How do you – Besides working so hard, act out a need for control in such an uncontrollable world? I don't know,
0: but I think that's a good question. And I think that's a question that a lot of us grapple with. Like, how do we do this? How do we function in a world that is so wildly out of control?
1: I think you wrote an article, I think, about how you've been Instagram ad shopping a lot during the pandemic. (laughs) I think a lot of us are doing things like that. Like, we're just soothing ourselves in a way that just feels immediate, right?
0: And, you know, I think that soothing, if you can, I mean, however you choose to self-soothe, if it doesn't harm you or anyone, I think it's fine. I think that especially over the past year and a half, we have had ample reason to need soothing, you know whether it's the overwhelming loss of life or the anxiety of not knowing much about the pandemic and the virus that was forcing us all into our well not all of us but most of us into our homes and um the political climate which has been rocky you know i think that coping mechanisms are required
1: yeah i mean One of the things that I've been asking guests about, and I went through this myself as a public speaker and also as a business owner, is um, money dried up overnight. Income dried up overnight. It did. Right? I mean, talk about a loss of control. Yes, for sure. How did that that feel for you?
0: It didn't feel great uh, because like many writers, I, I actually make most of my living via public speaking. And so I quickly realized in March of 2020 that I was out of work for the foreseeable future. And that was incredibly anxious. Fortunately, I have other things that I do, and I have savings. So I knew I could get through a year. I did not think it would take Mm -hmm. that long, and then it took longer. And fortunately, a lot of organizations and conferences course-corrected and started doing virtual events. So that helped. And, um, you know, I also have a really supportive partner and I married quite well, so I was not ever really going to have anything to worry about. But um, it was stressful and frustrating. And I also was able to keep things in the necessary context to recognize that, right. really, I was going to be fine. And it's okay to feel stress. And at the same time, I felt that it was important to recognize the, privi- the privileged position I was in, where I had options, and I wasn't going to lose my house, and things like that.
1: It's funny. When you first started writing your New York Times column, which is called Work Friend... I I read it voraciously because I love work advice columns and I wanted to hear what you had to say. But I had this kind of moment, which is hypocritical for me given what I talk about. But I was like, it's funny, Roxane Gay writes about big issues, social issues and culture and her creative life. Why is she giving advice to people who work in offices about like replenishing the candy dish and petty offenses that we all commit in the quotidian course of the day. Like, what was the, what was the appeal to you to give advice on that level?
0: Well, because it's actually not a minor thing that the guy was asking about the candy dish. It was a, a well-intended person, a well-intended man, um, is a supervisor at a medical organization. And he put out a little basket of candy and uh, Hershey's Kisses, something like that, small <laughs> chocolates. And he has an obese, in his words, employee. And one day he came by and he noticed there were a handful of candies on this guy's desk. And they're an exemplary employee, and also in his words. And But he wondered if he was contributing to their weight problem, was the way he phrased it. And I just was so aggravated, because you don't know. I mean, his weight is... You don't know if he thinks his weight is a problem. You think his weight is a problem. And, you know, the reality is that nobody is getting fat off of a handful of Hershey's Kisses. And I wish that we had perspective on these things. And so what really the guy was asking is, is it okay for me to police my employees' food intake? And the answer is no, it's not okay. And I think these are important issues. I think that workplace culture contributes a great deal to our happiness, or lack thereof. And I'm interested in answering those questions as much as I'm interested in answering other kinds of questions. And the reality is that 90% of the questions I get is about workplace culture. How do I handle this coworker? How do I handle my supervisor? How do I handle someone who's billing... Overbilling. What do I do? How do I handle this coworker I absolutely can't stand and want to sort of destroy? You know, it's rarely more like, how do I get better at my job or things like that? People have their jobs in hand. Um, so it's just interesting.
1: You've said, I think, that more than half the letters you receive from people who are sort of looking for permission to leave their jobs.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, so, uh, so many questions I, I have to like not answer uh, most of the questions I get because they're all asking me the same thing. Should I leave my job? And they're looking for permission. And yes, by all means, leave your job. I, I if that if you need permission, if that would help you make that decision, I, I encourage you to go if you can. The reality is that most of us can't just pick up and leave mm-hmm. our jobs. And it's it's a wrenching decision. And especially when the economy is precarious, you don't know if there will be another job waiting for you. So I understand why people ask these kinds of questions. And it actually just makes me so sad that people are so unhappy at work and that they are forced to compromise their personal satisfaction, their professional satisfaction, their sanity uh, for
1: a paycheck, but that is the world
0: that we live in,
1: well, but also, it seems to me that a lot of the letters start out i like I like my job, yes, <laughs> I like what I do, but I, the, it's it's the day to day people and like you say, culture around me that's driving me crazy. Mm-hmm. Like if I could just be left alone to do my work, everything would be fine, yes. So let's talk about boundaries, because it seems to me that a lot of what people are reaching out to you about in your column, and probably whenever you talk, and in, in, in all walks of life, is 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 almost permission to reinstate their boundaries and stick to them. Right? Yes. <laughs> Why does so much of the conflict that we seem to have, certainly in the workplace, come out of us? disrespecting each other's boundaries.
0: Uh, my friend Tressie McMillan-Cottom has this amazing newsletter called Essaying. And in one of her recent posts, she wrote about the tensions of whether or not to return to the workplace from working from home. Mm. And one of the things she wrote about is that, a, that there's a group of people who love in-person work because they get to be cops. And huh. they get to surveil and wield power in very immediate and intimate ways. And I think a lot of people crave that. And that's terrible, because they have no control in other aspects of their lives. Or they feel inadequate, and so they need to take it out on someone. And so I think a lot of that is what contributes We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Beret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One.
1: Do they not care what other people's boundaries are? Is it something that has never occurred to them to even think about? Is, is, is Is the B word not even in their vocabulary?
0: Hmm. I think it it depends. I think it can be yeah. a mixture of things. But, I, of course, they don't particularly care for or respect the boundaries of others, or they wouldn't constantly transgress them. I think that sometimes they see the boundaries and they want to trample them anyway. Like, they derive some sense of power or pleasure from doing so.
1: How would you define if you were if you were writing a work a work friend column and you were explaining what boundaries at work are and why they're important? How would you explain what a boundary is to someone and how they can know whether one of theirs is being crossed? I would tell someone think about what
0: would make you comfortable in a situation and what would make you uncomfortable. And mm-hmm. that's where your boundary is. That moment where You go from comfort to discomfort. Um, It doesn't have to be anything more than discomfort. Like your initial boundaries are, I don't care for that. And it's okay to have those boundaries. What are some common examples that people bring up? A lot of examples are about overwork. Mm -hmm. um, Work bleeding into late nights and weekends. And I'm not talking about sort of your typical Let's everybody pitch in because we're on a deadline. I'm talking about consistent overwork, consistent 70, 80 hour work weeks. It's just unreasonable. And a lot of people are subjected to it because they think that their job and they're correct is predicated on that kind of s- sacrifice. And it's okay to just say, you know what? My workday ends at six.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I don't work on Saturdays and Sundays. I don't check email on the weekends. I don't check email after five. I mean, most of us are not medical doctors. And the way that some people treat like work urgencies is unhealthy. And I include myself mm-hmm. in that.
1: I'm a writer. What urgency could there possibly be? But as you've said, you have a lot of people who depend on you.
0: I do. I do. But I refuse to believe that there's anything... That happens at like seven thirty eight p m that cannot wait until the next morning. It can. And we have created these false senses of urgency, and they're they're wrong. They're not necessary.
1: What are some other um what are some I, I'm always interested in introverts. Do introverts write you and say that they have d- different kind of boundaries after they've identified themselves as introverts? No, I haven't seen a lot of that.
0: But I I have I'm an introvert and I know that my sense of boundary is probably a lot different and the kinds of things that I'm concerned with are more about other people encroaching on my personal space. Like ooh.
1: Like what? How does how talk talk to me about like how you might at a book event your personal boundaries might get crossed?
0: Well, they used to, but now I just don't tolerate it. Uh, a <laughs> lot of times people want to hug me. Mm. And I understand why. And I respect it because that means that you have connected with something I have said or done. And a lot of what I write about are very emotional topics. And so I understand that people will feel a kinship. But I hate hugs. I have always hated hugs. I do not want to hug you. And a lot of people want to test that boundary, even though they know I don't like hugs, because I wrote about it in my memoir, mm-hmm. Hunger. And so I've gotten very good at saying I don't do hugs because at first i would just subject myself to the hug awkwardly and i you know it's like i don't know this person and so i find that just holding that boundary firm goes a long way and just saying i will not hug you thank you
1: okay so what advice would you give someone who's listening to this and they're like okay but she's Roxanne gay i'm a i'm a fairly junior employee and there is someone in my office, someone in a uh, related office, and I see them every month or so, and they always want to hug me, and it makes me feel creepy, but I don't feel that I have the power. Like, I don't want to offend them. I'm pretty new at my job. I like it here. I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to be mean. What would you say to them?
0: I would say that it's not mean to stand up for yourself. And if your, if your employment boat can be rocked, By a very reasonable boundary then it's probably time to start looking for um, another job
1: Mm -hmm. what do you say to people who feel trapped in the cycle of overwork
0: I again try to I would say it's important to try and find ways to establish boundaries and not only establish boundaries but to maintain them and also to be gentle with yourself when you can't Mm. You know, you can have all of the good intentions in the world in terms of maintaining boundaries, but it it's a two-way street. Like, people have to also respect those boundaries. Unfortunately, sometimes they don't, and it's incredibly aggravating because you just think, it took me so much energy to have this boundary. Help me out, please. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's, it's hard, though, because I find that um – I think that so much of, of subsuming ourselves into success, it requires a lot of just throwing some of our boundaries out the window. At least that's how it feels.
0: That's exactly how it feels. And I think that's exactly how it is. Yeah, I, I think that we just live in a culture that encourages a lack of boundaries. <laughs>
1: When you started thinking about boundaries just in general in your life, because I kind of did like a keyword scan this weekend. I kind of nerded out and looked at a lot of different areas of, of what you write about and talk about from from work to your personal memoir to even to politics and feminism. A- and the word boundaries keeps coming up. Like when did it become an important concept for you? Like what surfaced it?
0: Boundaries is new, are new to me. I'm still working on it, but it's – a concept I've been familiar with for quite a long time because I've been in therapy off and on since I was 14 or so. But the reality is that sometimes you need to believe you deserve to have boundaries. And that's definitely sort of where the work in progress comes from for me is believing I have a right to boundaries because for so long I believed like, oh, I'm just so terrible and so unlovable that I don't have a right to boundaries. I should just tolerate whatever people bring to my door Um, and that's where that, you know, it's, it's.
1: Hmm. Um, you've also said that you sort of, you're a good compartmentalizer. I am. (laughs) Why do you think that that's important? Is it something you're, is it something that you think is a, is a good skill and you want to keep pushing it? Or is it, what do you think about compartmentalizing between personal and professional and, and all the things?
0: I am a big compartmentalizer. Hmm. It can be good, but it can also be pretty um, risky because then you keep yourself closed off to a lot of different things and you don't necessarily allow yourself to feel the feelings that you need to feel in the appropriate contexts.
1: As we close, I'm curious if you have any last words of wisdom for people out there who are struggling who are feeling really low right now, really depressed, and yet they've got to show up for work and and keep powering through. I think it's important
0: to validate the feelings and just say you're not unreasonable Mm. for feeling horrible about that. You're not unreasonable for wanting a different professional situation. I think it's important to validate feelings. So many people are trying to some, so often people are talked out of their feelings or they are derided for their feelings. And no, I, I don't think that's healthy.
1: Hi, Bob.
2: Hi, Mara. How you doing?
1: I'm good. Well, I wanted to have you on the show because I found myself talking about your remote work sort of return to work advice quoting you of course in every speech that I an interview that I've given in the past month because I thought it was so helpful and what I'm hearing from people as they're getting ready to go back hybrid is that they feel very nervous about expectations right what are my manager's expectations? They say that I can come back hybrid, but do they really mean it? If my colleague is coming back full time, but I'm not, does that set up an unfair differential? And there's a lot of feelings. (laughs) And I found your advice on how to set expectations with managers and teams just so helpful. And I was wondering if you could share that.
2: Well, I'm glad that you found it very helpful. So, I believe that uh, in these situations when uh, workers are working remotely or whether you're when you're in a hybrid that it's obligatory on the manager to set expectations and it's critical to set norms Uh, and these norms should include, you know, when people are expected to be on, how fast they're expected to respond to email or slack messages. And what sorts of uh, behaviors are expected on weekends in the evenings? Because a lot of people have complained to me, and I'm sure they have to you, Maura, that without these norms, they feel like maybe they're expected to be on 24-7, and that's a crazy world.
1: So are you recommending that people literally set norms like no slacking after 6 p.m.? I mean, how granular should we get here?
2: Well, I think that we should try to have uh, guidelines rather than rigid rules, Mm -hmm. because there are always exceptions. But I think you could say uh, you're not expected to uh, answer any emails or any Slack messages that arrive after 7 p.m. or uh, on weekends, unless they're noted as an emergency from a client. So that would be the type of guideline that I would be thinking about.
1: You also suggested when we did an interview for a piece I was writing for HBR that if an employee was unsure of what their manager expected of them in terms of performance, that the employee could sneakily sort of manage the manager and set metrics, like very Specific, time delineated performance goals that hopefully would cut down on micromanaging and leadership anxiety that can often happen when you can't see or summon someone on your team.
2: Yes, I'm. I'm a big fan of what I call success metrics, and that is, you know, when when managers uh, set up projects or delineate objectives are often so general that the. People on the team aren't sure exactly what's expected by of them. So I'd like to think of a sort of negotiation between the manager and the team members as to what are the success metrics. Uh, I get this from my days when I was president of Fidelity. We'd start a big project. It's due in a month. And I'd say, well, how are we going to know? in a month whether we've been successful and that that clarifies a lot what people actually expect and once we have these success metrics then it allows the manager to sort of back off yeah he or she doesn't really have to be micromanaging because they sort of know what's expected what's going to come out at the end of the month uh, and if that's okay uh, you know why do they really have to look every day and it all thirdly uh, it helps the employee because if the employee the team manager team member is uh, getting those metrics done, then he or she is able to do it when and where and how they want to uh, it doesn't really matter as long as they're uh, getting the success metrics done within the time frame
1: huh. Will you tell the story of when you were a lawyer and you underbilled hours but it was okay?
2: Yeah. I, <laughs> I mean the problem with uh, having an hours-based billing system is that you know it's sort of an incentive to spend as many hours as possible. Uh but I was always a quick study, so I realized pretty soon that when I in the few years I spent in a law firm that I was gonna get the the answer much more quickly than other people and much more quickly than the client expected. So I basically went to the clients and explained to them the situation and we reached a different sort of billing system, which wasn't based so much on uh, the hours I put in, but rather what I got done in terms of the project and what sort of results
1: I got them. How did you have the courage to do that? Because this was before, way before email and computers and all that stuff. Like, you were pretty bold to suggest this.
2: Well, I guess it was just the uh, strong uh, sense that billing by the hour, in fact, as many law firms they actually bill by the minute, it's just a crazy system for a person who's very productive and gets a lot done.
1: What kind of dynamics are you seeing in terms of people's emotions as they're thinking about moving into a hybrid model? What are you telling leaders to look out for?
2: Well, I think you're right to say that a lot of people are anxious, and therefore I think leaders really need to give some guidance and give some guidelines. Uh, I We wrote an article in uh, the New York Times which listed five factors uh, that People should consider in designing a new hybrid. One was the nature of the job. A second was uh, the location and how the office was uh, spread out. A third was the organization and how it's organized. And uh, a fourth was culture. And a fifth was scheduling. But you know, I've come to see that most organizations are really a conglomeration of teams and what should be the optimal hybrid for each team could be very different, even within the same organization. I mean, in a financial services company, you have the investment people, you have the marketing people, you have customer service, you have technology. So all those teams are different. So you want to figure out if you're the team leader, what's the optimal configuration, the optimal. Uh, what we call Goldilocks plan. Not too much remote work and not too little for your team. And then really have a full discussion with your team about what that means. And that includes which days in the office. And I think the team should all come in uh, the same days in the, uh, a week uh, to the office if you decide, as most teams are going to. That you're going to want to be in the office a few days,
1: but I have a question. I want to challenge you on that because I I know that you're a fan of remote work, but you also believe that people should come together. I think it's two days a week. You said optimally, but but some people some people can't right, and some people don't want to.
2: Well, I think uh, if we look at all the surveys, about eighty percent of the people are going to favor hybrid. They're going to want to be in the office a few days a week and not to be uh, totally remote, but you're right that there are people who either can't come in because they're spread out all across the world or people who don't want to come in. And so I think uh, then you've got to really work hard as a manager to make sure that they're included. Uh, And if you do have, let's say, two days a week in the office uh, and there are people who can't come in or who uh, don't want to come in, then probably a lot of those meetings need to be by video so that you're including the people who are not in the office.
1: Yeah. I want to talk to you about patterns. Um, one of the things that I'm sure you you know because you're, you're married to a psychotherapist, it's really helpful when you manage your mental health, right, to recognize patterns, right, and right. Um, understand what sets you off and when you start to react in a certain way, when you start to spiral with negative thoughts, and and you think that pattern recognition is important in other areas in terms of working. How? And and how does that especially apply now when we're thinking about negotiating for what we want in this next phase of post-pandemic life?
2: Well, I think you've got to be clear uh, at, as to what what are the patterns that are most productive and most satisfying for you. And so you've got to figure out routines and structures that make sense for you. So for some people, that will mean coming into the office two days a week. For some people, that might mean three days a week. I don't know. For some people, it might mean no days a week or five days a week. So you've got to figure out what works for you and then have a discussion with your team leader and try to work out a a viable schedule for both of you.
1: Are there patterns that we're seeing? Like, I'm thinking about overwork. I'm noticing, and I'm sure you are too, that people are tending have tended during the pandemic to just work later because our laptops kind of travel with us throughout the house quite often, you know, and like we're on Netflix, but we're also answering emails. And then all of a sudden, that's a pattern and we're all working all the time.
2: Yeah, no, I I agree with you, especially at the beginning of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. People, when they didn't have norms that were being set down, Uh, felt that they had to be on most of the time uh, and started to work. And we heard a lot of people saying that they were uh, getting burnout. I think once uh, after the first few months, people started to move toward a more reasonable system. But as I said before, I think it's up to the managers to set ground rules to prevent that from happening. Otherwise, everybody on their team is just going to burn out. And that doesn't make any sense. So i think it's it's the obligation the responsibility of the manager to to delineate these norms and to have those sorts of norms expressly set out and if the manager hasn't done that i think the people on the team need to be able to come to the manager and say look we we need to have some sort of agreement as to what what's what are reasonable working hours here for us and uh What's going to happen in the evening is what's going to happen on the weekends. And I think, remember, every manager uh, not only is a boss, but she is also has a boss. She has <laughs> right. a boss. So, so she's used to that. She understands that dynamic. And I think it was Peter Drucker, the famous uh, uh, management guru, who said, you don't have to like or love your boss but you need to manage him
1: or her. That's true. So I was giving a talk a couple of weeks ago to a group of young women architects, and one of them expressed real dismay that the older men who owned the firm, whose, you know, kids were all gone and, you know, were frankly probably dying to get out of the house, had decided that everyone had to come back to work because they could. And it was a small business. You're a powerful White man who ran a big company, what a really big company. What would you tell these guys? What do they need to know when they think things should be a certain way? Maybe even because like that's just how things have always been, but a lot of their employees don't, but are scared to tell them.
2: Well, I think one thing I would tell them is that, as we've just discussed, that the key is what gets. Uh, you the best results in your firm mm-hmm. and the fact that you uh, did it one way doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to be uh, a really uh, good way for the people who work with you and that I would preach to them the the methodology of success metrics the question is what do you want to get accomplished and then let's figure out what's the best way to get there The second thing I would say is you know I've done a lot of surveys, of uh, senior management and they always say they're great listeners, they're giving everyone <laughs> all the time. But you know, when you talk to the people on their teams, it's not quite the same picture. Yeah. So I, th- I say to the managers, you gotta realize that unless you make yourself open to having discussions, unless you make it clear that you're willing to have people question your decisions, that you're putting these out. I sometimes use the term rebuttable hypothesis.
1: Whoa, rebuttable hypothesis.
2: Yeah, that's a way of saying, look, this is the way I think it might make sense for the team or for the office or the organization, and here are my reasons, but it's only uh, what I've tentatively come out with, and I'm really uh, interested in hearing whether uh, you think Uh, I might be wrong and coming up with other alternatives that might work better for you. So unless you make it very clear that you're willing and receptive to have criticism and alternatives, then people just be too scared to say anything.
1: You are a productivity expert. What is your number one productivity tip for remote work?
2: My number one... uh, (laughs) I guess I, I really don't have a number one, but I think <laughs> when you work remotely, one thing you've really got to do is you've got to structure your day. Mm. There's no natural structure by your commuting the office. So you've got to develop certain routines and certain structures that work for you. And then the second thing I would say is don't schedule yourself for back-to-back video meetings uh, because it's really a mistake. You want to keep... Uh, at least one hour free in the morning and one hour free in the afternoon for thinking time and possible contingencies, emergencies, Mm -hmm. personal or otherwise, you know, and third of all, try not to look at your email and your Slack channel all the time. (laughs) I try to get people to look at it once every hour or two hours and then work from there. Otherwise people spend the whole day in meetings and in uh, answering emails. And what they've really done is they've been passive. They've responded to everybody else's agenda, the, the what other people wanted for meetings and what other people wanted in terms of responses to messages. And they really haven't been actively pursuing what they consider to be their top priorities. And that's why in survey after survey, we find that people spend less than half of their working time on the what they say are their three or four most important professional priorities. And that's too bad.
1: And what? And it makes it hard to achieve those success metrics.
2: Yeah, because they're spending most of their day <laughs> going to <laughs> other people's meetings, responding to other people's messages. So then they don't have a lot of time left uh, to pursue what they think are their top priorities.
1: All right. So the message is seize your own Success metrics time. Claim it.
2: Absolutely. I like that. <laughs> uh, let's say, <laughs> uh, I think, seize the time for success metrics. I like that. Move, move to, toward outputs, toward results, toward success metrics. It's what you get accomplished that's important, not how many hours you spend at your computer. We want you to get a lot accomplished. We don't care. That much about whether you put in a certain number of hours uh, or a certain number of days. Focus on what you want to get accomplished and what your priorities are. Those are what are most important.
1: Oh well, thank you, Bob Posen. I couldn't agree more. That's it for today's show. Thank you to my producer, Mary Dew. Thanks to the team at HBR. I'm grateful to our guests for sharing their experiences and truths. For you, our listeners, who ask me to cover certain items and keep the feedback coming, please do send me feedback. You can email me. You can uh, leave a message on LinkedIn for me or tweet me at Moraam. And if you love the show, tell your friends. Subscribe and leave a review. From HBR Presents, this is Mora ahrens Mealy.